Hello and a Merry Christmas from the Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane, and on this special episode, I'm going to be speaking to author of Stuff, a history of good food and hard times in Britain, Penn Bogler. Amazing. Lovely, dim-lit atmosphere here in Brunswick House. Chandeliers everywhere, hanging plants. And we are a week until Christmas on this day. The 19th of December 2023, what a year it's been. And I'm delighted to be sat opposite Penn Vogler, author of the best-selling Scoff, A History of Food and Class in Britain, and her latest book, Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain. Penn, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. What a wonderful place to do an interview. You work, of course, at Penguin, don't you? And you uh, you were just saying you had a, uh, a very short journey to get here tonight. I walked over the very cold, windy bridge. <laughs> so it was some quite Dickensian black water, actually. It's quite scary at this time of night. It does have that real gloom to it at the moment, London, doesn't it? I it mean, really does. So... The Thames can be quite extraordinary. So it's yeah. lovely to be in this cosy spot here. I mean, I'm, I'm really charmed by this place already, but I'll leave it to you to tell the audience why you've chosen Brunswick House. Well, there's one very prosaic reason, which is it's over the bridge from where I work. And we quite often come here, actually, for penguin events, you know, for sort of little sales conferences and things. And they're always very charming and very lovely. A better reason, less prosaic reason, might be because as a historian, it feels like a very kind of relevant place because it's in the middle of Vauxhall, which has extraordinary history. And yet most of it seems to have been erased and replaced with these kind of gritty roads and very high rise buildings. And yet here is this old 18th century building with an incredible collection of chandeliers and lights and sort of stone statues reclaimed from buildings all over London, I think. And so it feels like a sort of haven for kind of historical objects, which is really nice for a food historian to kind of be sitting amongst. Absolutely. Couldn't have picked a better place. I think probably it would be good for us to go through some of the choice items that you write about, things that I think feature very commonly at this time of year for people. Those are, to my mind, though we don't necessarily consume them now, goose, cheese, of course, Christmas pudding, wine and ale. So our waiter, Alex, is here. Alex, take us through the menu. Okay, so the Brunswick House menu is a sharing style concept. We have lots of dishes varying in sizes. Um, The concept is to pick all your favorite things. You get to try as many things as you can that way. Um, We have five columns. There are snacks and appetizers. The second column are entrees and starters. We then have your mains, which is spread into two sections of individual size mains and one section of large sharers. We encourage all our customers to pick out each thing from a few things from each section. We'll guide them to what is too much or too little and we'll try and ensure they have the perfect amount of food to create a great evening. Thank you, Alex. So where does that leave us then, Penn? I think we should just talk about what it means to be a food historian, first of all. I mean, to look at the story of how human beings organize themselves, create rituals, go to war, worship around the theme of food. Very revealing. 
what has it taught you? I started with the food, in fact. I, um, when I started being interested in food history, I didn't even know it was a thing. Um, I was working at the British Museum, the publishing bit of the British Museum, and they published these incredible food history books. And I kind of discovered this idea that you could make a recipe from the past and it was a starting point for that it was a starting point that you could eat um, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't I made some pretty disastrous things and um, I love the idea that something that was on your plate or something you were sharing with somebody was a sort of doorway to the way that somebody produced it in the past who that person was who they made it for the power relationship between them there's a lot of upstairs and downstairs in food history and then and it sort of ripples out and out in terms of you know who grew that food what was their relationship to the person who made it or the person who bought it and um food of course we can't live without it it is us it makes up our bones and our blood and our body but it makes us up up the bones and blood of our society as well we have to talk to each other we have to work with each other to eat and uh, it just felt like a, a kind of unending route into a whole series of kind of corridors and byways and sort of kitchen cupboards and store cupboards that you could unpack endlessly in terms of how people relate to each other. We also tend to encounter British history in particular through this prism of class. I wondered, is this something that you think you would find explains the way that food and cooking evolves in all cultures if you looked hard enough? Or do you think that there's something, as we suspect, particularly class-ridden about food history in Britain? I came to the conclusion not having studied every single culture that it was probably fairly anglo-saxon and i suspect it's been exported to a degree in the states where it obviously has a different complexion but um my sister for example lived in uh, france for 18 years and she says that in france everybody or nearly everybody agrees on what good food is and with if you can't afford the best food or you can't afford as much food as you want you probably aspire to eat good food um and that and that seemed to kind of she said that sort of transcended class in france and i think it's probably the same in other european countries but in england i think we started off with the this kind of norman anglo-saxon idea of kind of two different hierarchies and that's really permeated the whole way that we do Nearly everything, but particularly food. Right. So in this new book, Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain, what did you want to build upon from Scoff that you felt you hadn't explored? The thing that really struck me when I was, um, when I was researching Scoff, my first book, or my previous book rather, was the enclosures. That was the thing that kind of just sent a shiver running down my spine, because, which I knew so little about. But it's the idea that people worked and lived and grew their own food or probably more likely um, had access to kind of common land for livestock. And that was an accepted way of kind of everybody living together for hundreds of years. And the common land was not owned in common. It was owned by a landlord. And that might be a, you know, a, a 
a church or the king or a kind of the lord of the manor but it was used in common and then of course what the enclosures did was to block that access off to people and land was enclosed so that it became more productive for the landowner but suddenly a whole system of kind of home economics was devastated for a huge number of people over many many decades and centuries in fact so the really the question that really lies at the heart of stuff came to me from the enclosures if you're going to enclose your land and take away somebody's access to it do you then take responsibility for them or do you just let them sink or swim and if you take responsibility for them in any kind what does that look like and it struck me that that question was actually at the heart of so many areas of kind of social turmoil and change and upheaval it's the heart of wars it's at the heart of pandemics it's at the heart of the way we look after our children and so you could ask it that question sounds rather dry about responsibility over almost any part of our history. You mentioned the commons. After we've had our delicious starters that have just arrived, we'll talk about the goose. Great. Wow, amazing. To talk about the goose then, a meat which we rarely eat these days for a number of reasons. It's a bird that can't be intensely farmed, has great attachment to its offspring, and also thrives when there's enough land for them to thrive in. But it is a bird that does still hold a place in our mind when we think of tales such as A Christmas Carol. Do you think goose is underrated today? I, I love goose, actually. But I have to say, if you're going to cook a goose at home, you need to open all the doors and all the windows. It's a very fatty bird and the fat just rolls off it as you're cooking like it does with a duck. But the resulting food is, you know, the meat is really succulent and really delicious. But it's interesting what you're saying about Dickens, actually, because if you think about a Christmas carol where you have a goose and a turkey, the goose is the poor man's food. The goose is the dish that the poor Cratchit family, rather a small goose, are going to sit down and enjoy together until Scrooge, who's reformed, uh, seeing the error of his ways, brings them a massive turkey. And the turkey was the meat of, it was munificent, you know, it had a huge amount of meat. It was expensive, it was kind of aspirational, and it was the thing to give to somebody as a gift. Did chicken also have a similarly luxurious connotation in Dickens' time? Well, chicken, no, Dickens always called it fowl. He talks about roast fowl, and he really means roast chicken. But they probably were a bit skinnier than today's chicken. They probably felt more like a fowl. And... This kind of obsession, I think, the near obsession that we have with chicken today is fairly common. It's fairly recent. It dates back from the last century, the 20th century, when some American businessman figured out you could actually raise chickens separately for eggs and for meat. And then suddenly there was a huge amount of chicken available. And then you get Kentucky Fried Chicken and you get chicken kind of everything really you know chicken noodles chicken everything but in the past early 20th century even it was far from common tell us about the goose then so when we had common land it was very common for people to raise a goose or geese and there's a lovely story that william cobbett tells he says he's he's riding in surrey between two towns about 10 or 12 miles apart 
And he says there are tens and tens and tens of thousands of geese upon the common. And he's using that as an example of how common land was kind of used by lots of different people. And all these geese would have been owned individually. And then as we were talking earlier, you know, the commons get enclosed. And so people don't have the space to raise their own animals. They don't have the space to raise their own geese or their own cows or pigs or sheep or goats. And those things get edged into the farmyards and get kind of edged out of people's lives to a degree. But even in the early 19th and mid 19th century, so in the kind of high Victorian time, people still loved goose. And you had what were called goose clubs at Christmas. In sort of suburban areas, what you'd do is you'd pay your money into a goose club, which is probably run by a publican. You might, you know, you might buy a drink when you pay your money. So you get a drink, the publican benefit. And um, it was like a Christmas club at the end. You get a goose for you and your family. And it was a way of kind of bringing that commonly kind of raised idea of geese into an urban area. But it didn't survive our move towards the turkey and the, you know, the chicken and, and the beef. So, yeah, goose is now it's probably easier to find a jar of goose grease in a supermarket to cook your roast potatoes than it is to find a, a whole Indeed. goose. I don't know where my understanding of A Christmas Carol by Dickens or as performed by the Muppets begins and ends, but my understanding is that the Cratchits roasted their goose over a spit, over an open flame. Is that how traditionally or even in best practice terms it's best to cook a goose because of its high smoking point? Most people actually, and this is what they do in in Dickens' version of The Christmas Carol, if not the Muppets, they take their goose to the cook shop. And most people in urban areas particularly didn't have ovens. They might have had a small fire, but probably not a fire big enough to roast a whole goose on. Oh, wow. And so there's this lovely scene in A Christmas Carol where all the little Cratchits are standing outside the cook shop, sniffing these incredible smells of roast goose and sage and onion. And they think they're saying to each other, oh, that's amazing smell, that best, the best smell of sage and onion, that's ours. That's the one we're getting. Because all the local, yes. you know, poorer people would have sent all their geese to the cook, to the cook shop. And that's how most people would have would have got things like pies and meat and joints cooked because they didn't have their own ovens. That's amazing, really. There's something very modern about people outsourcing the cooking of meat. So then what about the enclosures? Was there any resistance to this? Oh, there was a huge amount of resistance. I mean, the enclosures was not a single moment in time. The first Parliamentary Enclosure Act was in Dorset in the very early 1600s. And then the last Enclosure Act was in was about 300 years later, in the early 1900s. And over that period, enclosures was both unofficial and official. And the official ones were the Parliamentary Acts, spelt with an I often. So if you often see I-N-C enclosure, that's what it means. It means a Parliamentary Act. And now we call them enclosures. And there was a lot of resistance from local people and they would get together, they would make petitions, they would petition the magistrates, they would petition the landowners, and some of them have come down to us. And some of them are very sophisticated in their reasoning. Um, there's a really interesting one in Northamptonshire, I think, and, he's, and they say, if you don't enclose our land, then we can carry on raising the best quality cattle and then sell it on to the market and then that will help make the whole country wealthy by 
leaving it unenclosed. And that was quite a cunning argument because it, it was a complete, it met a kind of head on the general argument for the enclosures was that the country needed them. So this is why, this was the sort of intellectual justification for them. The country, they had a hugely growing population. We needed to feed the population. There wasn't enough land. The land wasn't exploited enough. And so we needed to produce more food or kind of higher levels of food, you know, high protein and animals from enclosed land. And that's what the country needed to be kind of economically worthwhile particularly in an area, like I say, there was a hugely growing population. We were beginning, of course, also to start to kind of conquer other nations across the world. And so this idea is that the country needed to be wealthy in order to kind of fund its colonial exploits. So it kind of was a sort of a big vicious circle. And it came from this idea that what was common here, here as in England, would be extended to our colonial lands as well and so that would be our sort of um, you know the Caribbean and places in India and Asia North America obviously would become our kind of common resource and we could tap into that to feed this growing population in Britain oh we've just finished the can you remember what it was called no, the raw, no we've just finished what I think is a, best described as a steak tartare with with very finely chopped very sweet shallots and a Benito mayonnaise. But also dried and smoked marrow. Beautiful, wasn't it? I loved that. Quite and of extraordinary. Course, the sand carrots, which were cooked to perfection, loved those as well. Also loved the crust on it, which had a sort of sandy quality to them as well, like they'd just been plucked out of the earth. This moves us on to the Christmas pudding. Some of us love them, some of us hate them, but very few of us can say off the top of our heads what is actually in a Christmas pudding. And then after that, really, as a symbol of Imperial Britain and free trade. So what exactly is in a Christmas pudding? What is the round speckles cannonball that Dickens talked about? So if you did your own, if you stirred up your own Christmas puddings on Stir Up Sunday, you'll recognise all the ingredients. It's dried fruit, currants, sultanas, raisins, maybe uh, chopped peel, maybe some nuts if you want it, maybe some um, glacé cherries if you want them. And then flour, sugar, and then the fat is unusual because the fat in Christmas puddings is often suet rather than butter. And that's why it traditionally came from a very kind of meaty, very kind of beefy sort of culture where where suet was very easy to get hold of. You you stick in some liquid, you stick in some brandy or some rum or something, some orange, some lemon, all these, maybe some apple. And the apple is almost the only thing in Christmas pudding that was probably grown here or grown nearby. Apple and maybe beer. Some people make put beer in their Christmas pudding, which is also potentially a kind of British ingredient. Everything else is an import. And this is what's so extraordinary about that kind of round globe-shaped pudding. All these ingredients that we think of as a very British dish. And, you know, Victorians were particularly fascinated by this idea that it was kind of globe-shaped. It kind of represented Britain and it represented the world at the same time. And yet almost nothing comes from here. 
right. I'm just looking at a, a picture in the book of the Empire Christmas pudding. It's quite hard in this candlelight to see exactly what's in it, but I think you've pretty much covered everything. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the rituals closer to home around the Christmas pudding? I'm thinking here about the hidden penny, which is still, I think, a tradition that some people adhere to, although anxieties around choking hazards might have put paid to that yeah. in a lot of households. Yeah. But that and setting fire to it, how did these things come about? Well, interestingly enough, a lot of those rituals come from the 12th cake. So in, in, again, mid-Victorian times, Twelfth Night was a massive festival, and earlier than Victorian times. Twelfth Night was a really big festival. It was a very important festival. And what we think of now as Christmas cake was eaten as a twelfth cake on Twelfth Night. And you'd put in a pea for the queen, a bean for the king, and little tokens like a penny. And they varied throughout, you know, from family to family and from, de- you know, and from era to era. But you might find a little token and that would be the, the thing or the person that you had to enact for that night. And so that idea of the, the pennies, which we now hide in Christmas puddings, have been taken over from, from the Twelfth Cake because we kind of got rid of Twelfth Night. It was too much celebration, too much holidays and a bit too riotous and the Victorians didn't really like it very much. They wanted more work, fewer holidays and less riot. I'm quoting from the book here where you write, Our culinary traditions have developed alongside imports of spices, dried fruit, sugar, tea, coffee, rum, chocolate. The habit of transforming ingredients with British culinary techniques and names glosses over our reliance on the rest of the world. Christmas is a reminder of how far away from self-sufficiency we are. If you remove the non-British ingredients from the King's Empire Christmas pudding, we would be left with apple dumplings and a pint of beer. It feels closer to home now than ever. The 2020s has brought about not just a pandemic creating huge shocks to our food supply, but also a land war in Europe, the first in nearly three quarters of a century, and in one of Europe's biggest food producing countries. It's woken us up to the frailties of our import heavy supply system. Do you think it's time that Britain really woke up to this and did something about it? Are we able to? Is it possible for us to reverse engineer our agricultural economy and the way we consume? We do have a huge population for our surface area. And one of the things that prompted us to to start to import grain in the first instance of sugar, obviously, was because we did have this growing population and a real fear about how to feed them. And if we think about that fear that a lot of people have now about feeling that you were going to be overrun with immigrants for example that was a fear that people had say in the middle or the early 19th century or or earlier than that but about the population growing internally and so I think we do have to understand that the need to feed the population is paramount and that governments and businesses make decisions around that idea of feeding the population. I think one of the things that we've really lost sight of is not just where our food comes from, but the quality of it. You know, we were an industrial population. It's very easy for an industrial population to take to industrial food, which essentially is what we've done. But I think there's something about a hungry population, which is so frightening. And the idea of hunger is so frightening. We focus sort of historically more on quantity rather than quality. And the idea of just getting enough food into people 
without caring too much about what it is, where it comes from, whether it's made in a factory, what it looks like. I think that's one of our biggest problems at the moment. And no, I don't think we will ever be... I, don't, I mean, I'm not an economist or a future-looking uh, you know, political scientist, but I don't think anybody believes that we will be self-sufficient in food again. But I do think there are things we can do about the quality of our food as much as the quantity of where it comes from. So to talk about cheese, it's not only in the book, but it is by far one of the most consumed foods. And I say this without any evidence. I just know it's one of the most consumed foods during Christmas. But let's start with the plowman's lunch, because that's really where you start this chapter. We've talked a lot about the sort of romantic ideas we have around food and our history as an island nation. And the plowman's was one of those things that I always assumed was a traditional dish that evolved over many centuries. It turns out it was a ploy by vested interests. Marketing ploy. After World War II to get us to eat more cheese in pubs. Explain that one. I'm outraged. Well, it's really interesting um, because cheese is actually in some ways a real success story. In the middle of the 40s and 50s, cheese, our kind of traditional cheeses and farmhouse cheeses, it kind of ended in the Second World War for all kinds of reasons. Rationing was one reason, all sorts of other economic reasons as well. And people lamented the fact that our good old cheeses were lost to England. What were those at the time, our good old cheeses? Well, interestingly, um, cheeses were known on the whole by their region. So they might be called, it might be called Wiltshire or Cheddar, obviously. as Cheddar, Cheshire. Um, Gloucester. Gloucester, yes, exactly. So cheese in France, for example, tends to be much more localised, tends to come from a village or a particular farmhouse, whereas traditionally cheese here has been called known by territory. But also lots and lots of small individual farmhouses making their own cheese that might not have had a name apart from their own cheese. You know, Stilton, obviously, is one example of a cheese that we've always done really, really well. Wensleydale as well. Wensleydale, yes, um... Lancashire... George Orwell writes about in his, yes, in his yes, defense his of English cooking. He doesn't like yes. his flabby weight Lancashire, <laughs> no, exactly. Wensleydale, exactly. Um, and, you know, Carefilly and those kind of Welsh cheeses and anything in the Second World War that couldn't be chopped into a block got dispensed with because you, cheese, was, cheese was rationed and you had to have it, you had to be able to cut it into a two ounce block. And so it took a long, long time for the kind of cheese industry to sort of recover, really, and for people to produce old-style farmhouse cheeses, particularly good, strong farmhouse cheddars, you know, that take a long, long time to mature. But they did, you know, it's an, an amazing success story. It's been written about quite a lot recently. And the big cheese manufacturers realise that here is a way to get people to eat stronger cheese on the whole the cheese manufacturers the thing that they were good at was selling bland cheese bland eating cheese but actually it's not very good for cooking with and this is a new idea came up that you might actually cook with cheese they started to make it stronger and stronger and one way of getting rid of all this kind of blocks and blocks of cheese that we're kind of building up the marketing board came up with this idea of the plowman's lunch. You put a bit of strong cheese on a plate with some pickle, some bread, something green, maybe, something red, maybe, a tomato. And there you have a plowman's lunch, nearly a salad, even, not quite a salad, you know, not that continental in the sort of 70s when it starts. But it's incredibly popular, easy for somebody to put together, easy to eat, quite easy to like. 
Sounds like we've always been manipulated into eating the things that we've eaten. Is that true of, of other countries or indeed of most countries? Or has Britain, because of the amount of food that it imports, because of the empire, has it always been a country susceptible to basically being told what to eat and then accepting it without resistance or questioning? I think that's such a fascinating question because if you look at something like sugar, for example, in the, let's say, the 15th century, sugar was almost not eaten at all in this country. And then you get the, you know, the kind of territorial conquest or invasion of the Caribbean, Caribbean islands like Barbados and Jamaica, and they start to you start having the sugar plantations and they start producing sugar on this kind of almost industrial scale. And that sugar needs a market. And it's really interesting about how the population is persuaded that sugar is a kind of natural taste, that, you know, everybody likes sugar. Babies like sugar. You can see babies smacking their lips when they eat a kind of sugary sort of, you know, fate, you know um, sort of milk substitute. And that, too, doctors in the 18th century was evidence that sugar was a natural taste and we should all be eating lots of it. And it was those sort of ideas that really fed that kind of burgeoning industry. Yeah. And also, you know, there you have this new population, growing population in cities that needs a cheap high. And so tea, sometimes coffee and sugar are those kind of almost drugs i suppose sugar is the gateway drug sure i mean sugar does have a sort of very very kind of addictive process i mean personally i wouldn't criminalize it but no i think you know the idea that you have sugary vapes you know you have vapes which have sweet strawberry or yeah. vanilla or apricot or whatever they are that's no coincidence pretty criminal to me Going back to Orwell's essay, I just wanted to to pick up on what he says here. He wrote the essay in 1945. It's a well-known essay. Quote, we are not likely to succeed in attracting tourists while England is thought of as a country of bad food and unintelligible bylaws. At present, we cannot do much about it, but sooner or later, rationing will come to an end and then will be the moment for our national cookery to revive. I mention this particular excerpt because... And I may be wrong about this. It seems that there was not only no revival after the Second World War, but that there was a systematic unlearning of national recipes and techniques. And you mentioned how persuadable the British public has always been. But after the Second World War, it seems we were more suggestible about foods from the next great empire, America. Is that how it went? And is that why we're sort of at a stage now in history of trying to relearn how to cook for ourselves and be more discerning about good food, good ingredients, organic food, etc.? I think I'd agree with your, uh, your analysis. I wouldn't place the, this kind of starting point, though, as the Second World War. I think I would go much, much further back in, in time to kind of consider when our kind of national palette was sort of manipulated or changed. And, you know, it's got a lot to do with... I mean, you can go back to 1066, quite honestly. Right, OK. You can go back that far. It does seem that we were more competent before our resources and our spirit was ground down to that level. Although I take your point, it probably wasn't the starting point. So where would you say our national palette really took a turn that we can still trace to today? I think our national palate was so if 
this restaurant that we're in at the moment, the food we're eating is a little bit French, it's a little bit international, but essentially it's good food, really good food, quite locally produced, although we have just had carrots from Normandy, but Normandy is not that far away. It used to be the same landmass. And, you know, beef and meat that's locally. And that palette, I think, was established in probably the kind of Georgian period, established in about the 18th century, where there was a kind of a bit of a fight going on between the good local, probably more female cooks and then the chefs, probably more male French chefs of the aristocracy and the elite. And there was a kind of a bit of a sort of fight between John Bull, you know, the kind of roast beef, Yorkshire pudding, Christmas pudding kind of John Bull, and this kind of high fancy French, highfalutin kind of French idea of food. And I think in the Victorian period in particular, when status became so important, that's when French food got this incredible kind of elite image everybody aspired to it and it actually it had to be French even more than it had to be good and I think that's possibly where we lost sight of the stuff that makes food good and local right in that period against kind of industrialization against a very very fast turning social background against a lot of people becoming rich becoming very aspirational wanting to join a kind of a higher elite and French food was a route to doing that. And I think that's probably where that kind of idea of kind of British food began to kind of slip and began to fall apart. And interestingly, in the Second World War, yes, of course, we were ground down. But I think if you speak to a lot of people in the Second World War, they will talk about how the misery of powdered egg, for example. But people's nutritional standards the majority of people's nutritional standards rose in the second world war and for some people their standards fell in a good way so they had less sugar less fat and so we had more quality of nutrition in the 40s and 50s than we've had at any time since so there's quite a lot of good stuff that came out of it and that was a deliberate policy of the food minister at the time to use rationing as a chance to equalize nutrition amazingly successful But understandably, you know, rationing went on until 1954 and understandably people got pretty fed up (laughs) and wanted good food. And it's not that surprising that innovations like hamburgers and Coca-Cola just seemed incredibly delicious and, you know, exciting. So we've just finished our mains. You had the cod, I had the beef cheek. You mentioned earlier to me, Pen, that beef cheek uh, is actually very, very tough. It's, it's barely possible to cut through it before it's been cooked, but that was like butter. You should be able to eat it with a spoon. I could have. If I had actually used the spoon to my left, I would have been able to cut through it very handily. But as it stood, absolutely delicious. How was yours? How was the cod? Oh, completely delicious. They'd cooked it perfectly. So it was sort of a tiny bit flaky, but still quite sort of like a quite solid, almost bouncy, which sounds a bit odd for cod, but it was actually really delicious. Excellent. This sort of little kind of bouillabaisse sort of soup thing. It was really good. The last chapter then is on wine and ale. An incredibly rich, complex and socially very important story. Where do we begin this chapter? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because quite often people go travelling in other parts of the world and they expect there to be an, a pub or a tavern or an inn or a hotel, you know, every few miles as there is here. And quite often there isn't. Um, And it's just some indication that our 
our kind of hospitality industry as we think of it today has grown out of quite specific kind of economic and social circumstances. And I would really date it to around the time of the plague, amazingly late 14th century. Because before then, we didn't need a hospitality industry if you were poor. Because if you're poor, you were stuck to your village. You didn't have permission to go anywhere. You didn't have anywhere to go. That was enough. Um, if you were wealthy, you would travel around the country and you would just be put up by the local, you know, uh, lord in his castle or his big house or his mansion house or an abbot in a monastery. And those people were kind of socially obliged to give hospitality to, to passing strangers, but sort of only really if the passing strangers merited it in social terms. And what happened after the plague is that that got rather muddled because a lot of passing strangers started to be much lower status. They started to be working class people on the move and on the make. Sometimes whole villages would disappear in the plague. People had to move. They had to move to the towns. They had to move to other places where they could find work. And so those people on the roads weren't the sort of uh, elite, you know, knights any longer. They could be anybody. Yeah, so people moving around the country aren't relying on uh, on sort of rather sort of disapproving lords and abbots in their in their kind of great rooms they can go to a simple pub and pay for some ale or they can just see whether a, a, a housewife for example has brewed extra ale and has got some for sale and she might just stick a broomstick outside her house her door to show that she has a few kind of pints of ale going spare you'd be welcome to come in sit on a bench outside the front door and pay a couple of pence for it and from there you arise to something like this this incredible kind of busy clattering noisy very efficient very fantastic you know uh, restaurant bar pub that we find ourselves in today now the division between bar and restaurant that's something that still feels very important to even the most attractive gastro pub the idea that there has to be a space in that venue, just as there is here in Brunswick House, for people to partake purely in the drinking aspect. How did that come about and why is that still so important? So Britain's drinking culture and the kind of northern drinking culture is really fascinating. It's very, very long standing. If you go back to the Bayer Tapestry, for example, you can see that there are little pictures of the Normans the night before the Battle of Hastings, all having a delicious sort of um, barbecue. They're all eating bread and meat. There were pictures of the Anglo-Saxons the night before the Battle of Hastings, and they're just drinking. They have these big drinking horns, probably full of beer. There is not a bread roll to be seen or cheese to be seen. And so that kind of idea that the Brits, the Anglo-Saxons drank, has very, very long roots. And was that portrayal of the Anglo-Saxons drinking without food designed to illustrate some sort of tactical error on their part? Um, yeah. Did they believe eating was cheating and thus ended up losing there, that battle? There is, <laughs> there is a story that was told after the Battle of Hastings that, yeah, the Harold's army lost because they had been drinking the night before. They all had hangovers. Who knows if it's true or not, but that was definitely the image and not a lesson that we've really learned though as no, a country is it really. but it's a very very anglo-saxon thing and you go back to kind of anglo-saxon drinking culture this idea that alcohol bonds people together 
Um, and some people even align that to a raised bread culture because you cannot make raised bread or beer without yeast. And those two things probably emerged at very similar times together in the past. But the evolution of the pub, the pub has never died. It's always been with us in some form or other. But is there a point in history that the, the modern idea crystallized? It's so interesting that we talk today about the pub because actually historically the pub has been all sorts of different things. It's been a tavern, it's been an inn, it's been a family coaching inn that might have a coffee room for women and children and families to go in. Interestingly, our pubs have been graded, socially graded, really from the beginning. And I think that does go back to that idea that um, all those different people on the road would also be kind of socially graded. And so if you turned up at a monastery, for example, and you were a, a working man, you wouldn't have been a woman in the, the sake about medieval times, very unlikely to be. You'd have been taken by the monks into the refectory, given a very simple meal and maybe some water but maybe more likely ale small ale to drink if you were much more aristocratic you'd be taken by the abbot into his rooms into his chamber and given a, a much bigger meal much more elaborate meal sometimes with meat although monks weren't always allowed to eat meat and you'd be given wine of some kind of description you know might be spiced it might be fruity might be quite delicious might be a little bit sour um, and so that kind of sense that each person is looked after according to their status. And I think our hospitality industry has also grown up with that idea in mind as well. And so you have kind of pubs for beer, wine bars or wine shops for wine, and everybody can find somewhere that will suit them. I think that's what's so amazing about our kind of tavern culture, our pub culture, is how varied it can be. My question to you really at the end of this is, what, if anything, you would like this book to do for somebody who is looking to approach sourcing ingredients, cooking and eating in a different way? I think there are two answers to that. One is on the kind of individual level. Um, and what was really important for me in writing about food, what's always important for me about writing about food, is the food. Is there something that you can go into the kitchen and cook and then eat? That's very important. And so I've got sort of a few recipes um, eat, there's six sections to the book and each section has a recipe for food that we used to eat more of or we used to eat in a different way or that we would, if our forebears had maybe made different kind of historic choices we'd still be eating today on the big level what I was trying to do for myself was to answer a question that Marcus Rashford made us ask in the pandemic and this is whose responsibility is it to feed hungry children is it the government is it the parents and really I wrote the book because I wanted to find out that answer right at the end I came to a fairly obvious conclusion actually is that it's an individual's responsibility to make the best of what they can it's the individual's responsibility to make the best choices that they possibly can to feed themselves to feed their family but it is the government's responsibility what I would really like the government to do or people in government to do is to take back that idea of responsibility themselves. Historically, responsibility has always been pushed onto the individual, the housewife, the mum, the person cooking, who's probably got the least resources to cope for it. And governments need to take responsibility for the nation's health, for the nation's food, because 
they have the economic responsibility and they have the security responsibility and they need to make sure that we are economically healthy and that we're kind of militarily secure and if you have a badly fed population with an NHS bill of six billion a year because of food related ill health we do not have that economic security and if you have a population that is not well enough to work or even possibly god forbid fight for the country then also that means that we're not militarily secure. And those are the moments historically when governments have realised that they cannot be entirely laissez-faire. Those are the moments when they've realised there's an economic cost or there's a military cost or a security cost to a badly fed, badly nurtured population that governments have then chosen to act. And we just need to be aware that, that, that those issues are still with us today. I have nothing to add to that. I agree with every word. <laughs> All I can say is that we will find out in this decade in particular, given how it started, just how much that is true. Pengen Bogler, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for dinner.